This is a Willits Point Shea Stadium bound 7 express train. The next and last stop is Willits Point Shea Stadium. It is the Subway to Shea podcast. Anthony Rivera here with you talking about all the news and happenings surrounding that team from Queens, the New York Mets. Episode 90 from the Subway to Shea studios in my office. The hot stove ain't so hot. It ain't 90 degrees, but not even warm or lukewarm. I know my guest coming up says it's freezing. And I have to agree, feels like we're in an icebox right now. Hopefully next week things will pick up during the winter meetings in San Diego. And uh, we will be covering it if any news drops. But until then, I said I had a guest coming on. And we're going to bring him on right now because a huge event is taking place this weekend for Met fans. The Queens Baseball Convention, the QBC, is happening. It's a fan fest run by Met fans and is a mix between Comic-Con and a baseball card show. I love how they worded that. You can be there on December 3rd at the Four Points by Sheraton, which is located at 3368 Farrington Street in Flushing, Queens. Get your tickets at queensbaseballconvention.com. And you can see my next guest and friend to the show, John Sapinaro. You know him as the co-host, along with Matt Ibi-Ibanez of the podcast Till Mets Do His Part on the Chop Sports Network. And he will be hosting the Bartolo Cologne panel at the QBC. John's also a stand-up comedian, host, actor, voiceover artist. He works for Monster Jam and has a podcast on the Jets as well. John, first off, how are you? And secondly, dude, you're a jack-of-all-trades. What don't you do, brother? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, uh, man, what what don't I do? Evidently make enough money doing one whole thing because <laughs> I've got to do too much. Um no, it, it's great, man. It, it's nice to be able to kind of, um, you know, do all these the different things that I'm, I'm passionate about. You know, when the opportunity came my way to do a Mets podcast, um, I could talk Mets with anybody, and I have, much to other people's dismay. I mean, I've been at the supermarket, see somebody with a Mets hat on, I'll, like, go two aisles over and be like, hey, man, what did you think about? And they're like, oh, who are you? You know, so <laughs> um, it's nice to have a place to, to put that energy. Um, you know, uh, I had been doing stand-up for a long time and, and announcing for Monster Jam for a long time. So over the past two years or so, to be able to do some more work, um, either with the Mets, which I was fortunate to do, or, or tangents off of the Mets, um, like the Queens Baseball Convention and my own podcast and um, obviously getting to meet people like you who are also great Mets content creators. It's It's been a nice little um, outlet, especially as the Mets, you know, sold to Steve Cohen and, and really kind of ushered in what I think is, is really a new era, despite what some people on Mets Twitter seem to think. I know. And, and as of late, man, you've you've been uh, stirring pot with Mets fans and, and they've been giving it back to you, even even in our little, you know, Twitter chats as well. People, people don't mind <laughs> chatting in with you and you don't mind giving it back either. No, you know, it's funny. Like, I, I don't, like, I'm not, I'm not like a bad dude and I don't try, like, 
I don't try to like troll actually, but I just think that some people like sometimes miss the mark of like what we're, what we're doing or what's going on. Or like, you know, I got into it yesterday, I think with somebody, I don't know if that was on one of our sub, you know, uh, sub tweets or whatever, but you know, dude was like, actually this, 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 this. And like, can't you just make this point without trolling? And it's like, I, I make that point all the time to like beat writers, because I think that a lot of beat writers are absurd. Like, Hey, you know, you could cover team. You don't have to be always positive. You know, you are part investigative reporter. Something comes out, you know, break that news. But like, as a comedian, these guys are out there cracking jokes that are like the worst yeah. conceived, poorly written or like lowest hanging fruit jokes you could possibly put together. So like, I'll usually take those guys to task, but like, you know, this dude turns around and says to me, like, couldn't you just say you don't like that deal without, like, you know, using hyperbole? And I'm like, dude, I don't work for the Mets. I don't work for <laughs> for a newspaper. I was like, I'm a comedian who's a Mets fan. Like, this is my opinion that I think is going to make some people laugh. Like, what do, what do you think we're doing? It's Twitter. Like, what, what are we doing here, guys? Yeah, it's funny that you bring up the reporters, too, because a lot of the reporters that I, you know, I had a lot of respect for growing up and, you know, watched on Baseball Tonight and, you know, would read all their articles and stuff. It, it's much, much of clickbait recently. And then you, I don't know if you saw yesterday, they were coming up with these trades on SNY and trading the whole farm system for a guy who's like, we wouldn't have done that during the year. Why would we do that during the off season for that guy? I, I think it was like someone from the Pirates, uh, Brian Reynolds or something like that. And and it was like trading Kevin Parada and, and Alex Ramirez and trading all of our... Like, where do these guys... Like, I don't care if you make a trade, a rumor, but can we be logical? Can we make something that makes sense? Can it be something that we can debate whether hey, this might actually be a good trade or, you know what, I, I wouldn't do this because of this. Not something to just have us click on and 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 tune into. Yeah, well, it's funny because that's the exact um, tweet or that's the exact uh, uh, post that I got into it with somebody over because, yeah, you're right. They wanted to trade. They proposed three top 10 prospects, Ramirez, Mauricio, and Parada, plus um, I think it's Hamill, who's like our 12th ranked prospect. So basically mm -hmm. four of our top 15 prospects for 27-year-old Brian Reynolds. And look, I like Brian Reynolds. I think he's a good ball player. But my, my response to that tweet, which got some likes and some laughs or whatever, was, F it. Why don't we just trade our entire top 15 for um, Adam Frazier? Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep going. And the dude was like, Brian Reynolds is so much better than Adam Frazier. I'm like, I, I, I understand. But like, and then he's like, you know, actually, if you look at F war, he is the most valuable, the fifth most valuable center fielder in baseball. And I'm like, guy, like, I understand he's good, but like, let's not make it sound like, he, like, this is, that, that's like, um, that's approaching a, a Juan Soto type deal. It's not enough to get Juan Soto, but that's approaching a Soto type deal. That's approaching an Otani type deal yeah. where you're giving up, you know, I was like, you can't, you also have to take in context that the Mets have a middle of the road farm system today oh, according yes. to most you know so they're either 12 13 14 15 somewhere in that range and i think trading three of your top 10 even leave hamill out of it trading three of your top 10 for brian reynolds is probably not good baseball the guy's a 274 hitter for his career he's 27 years old you know he, he's played in baseball obscurity in pittsburgh who knows what he would do if he came to the mets like that has that has bad trade written all over it you can see from literally 
California where I live. So, yeah, and, and you know, it's just it's just one of those things. And when I try to do, you know, when talking to you know Med fans about the farms, and, and I'm not an expert on the farm system, but what I have noticed, and it's like, oh, why didn't we get, you know, for example, David Robertson, our prospects better than this guy? Why didn't we just give? The thing is, like, outside of Francisco Alvarez and probably Brett Beatty, who are in the top 100, I don't know if Mauricio or Alex Ramirez is in the top 100 of all prospects, but out of those two guys, everyone else, I mean, considering everyone in MLB, they're not top prospects considered all these other players that are in the top 100 of all of baseball. Yeah, it's true. I mean, look, their farm system jumped up after their most recent draft. And look, I'm not a prospect guy either from 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 the perspective that you're bringing up. I don't know these guys in and out, like some people like Joe DeMeo and stuff, but you know, their prospect, uh, their farm system ranking jumped up after the last draft. And you can see, you know, Parada's already your number three prospect. Jet Williams, mm-hmm. I think is five or six. You know, these guys, they just drafted and like, you know, look, I don't know what Jet Williams is going to wind up being, but to me, the profile doesn't seem like, like he's not a Lindor type shortstop. At least that's not what he profiles as. So, you know, you're looking at some of these players and, Look, I'm happy. I hope they succeed, or I hope that they can be used in trades to get us players that are proven. But at the end of the day, our farm system is not elite, and that means you have to be a lot more careful with what you do. Like, again, would I take Brian Reynolds on the Mets? Sure, if they don't re-sign Brandon Nimmo, I think you have to replace him in some way, shape, or form. But I don't think giving up three top 10 prospects for a guy like that is necessarily the way to do it. Not when you can do other stuff for just money. I know this is probably going to be uh, something that a lot of people roll their eyes at. But, you know, me and Ibby talked about it extensively on Till Mets Do His Part a couple weeks ago. You know, there's an avenue where I would take Cody Bellinger on a one-year deal. Now, I don't think he replaces Nimmo wholesale, but I think he's going to be the type of player that needs to take a one-year deal. So if you tell me the Mets wind up signing, you know, they've already brought back Diaz, they're going to bring back DeGrom, they're going to get a guy like Turner or Correa or something like that and move some pieces around. And then, you know, one of the final pieces of that is Cody Bellinger. He's going to hit seventh and play a gold glove caliber center field for a year and we'll see what happens. To me, that's better than trading three prospects for Brian Reynolds. Like, I, I, you know, this guy won an MVP. I know he hasn't been the same player over the last three, four years, but to me, that's stuff that you have to look at before you're just like, oh, I'm going to trade, just trade them, just trade them. Because I've said all the time, I'm not a prospect hugger. If, If it was up to me, you could trade all of them, but in a way that makes sense. Would I have traded five or six players to get Juan Soto? I would have. I was on my show. I talked to anybody who would listen. I would have traded Francisco Alvarez for Juan Soto. That's how good I think Juan Soto is. But Juan Soto might be Ted Williams. You know, Brian Reynolds is not Ted Williams. (laughs) You know, too, with these, you know, the prospects, even as great as a draft that the Mets have, it's telling that still probably not enough. They still probably need two or three more drafts to kind of fill the farm system and get up there. They're moving up the rankings, but they still need time. And, you know, sitting this whole month of November with like nothing happening, you know, nothing on the the hot stove happening, kind of uh, gathering information like they the, they were saying the Mets were doing now, but doing my own like gathering of information and just, you know, out of my own opinion and thought, 
I don't really think that this is going to be a huge offseason for the Mets. Outside of, you know, bringing back a DeGrom and getting a third starting pitcher, they might go with David Peterson as the fifth starter. What I thought that they were going to do offensively was add a DH like a Jose Abreu. They're not even going that route. So if they bring back Brandon Nimmo, that that offseason might be us just bringing back, you know, the players that we had. They can't spend over, I would say 350 would probably be the limit. I think you mentioned it on Twitter that that might be as much as they go, but they're not going to go crazy right now in the offseason and sign all these free agents. I don't. I just don't see it happening. Well, you know, they're in a weird spot, um, and yep. I have said 350 on Twitter. I've said 350 basically for the entire offseason because if you look at the math of where contracts are um, right now and what – like, look, the Mets have a really good team, but the Mets also had a lot of guys that were important become free agents at once. And so, you know, they're going to have to spend, and people keep throwing back in my face, oh, just because Cohen's rich doesn't mean he could sign everybody. I never said that. And they're like, just because he's rich doesn't mean he's going to have a $500 million payroll. And I'm like, I never said that. But he probably will have to have a $350 million payroll. Now, I know that that's absurd. That's so high. But none of these decisions exist in a vacuum, right? So the Mets need to bring back players. They literally lost their entire bullpen in one offseason. Mm-hmm. Right, everybody and the rotation all at once, and the rotation essentially. So they have to go out and fill these voids. So they have no choice but to spend because, to your point, their farm system, while getting better, isn't quite there yet. They're not the Dodgers. The Dodgers went out, they got Manny Machado. Everybody thought they were going to keep Manny Machado. All of a sudden, they let Manny Machado walk. They go out, they acquire Trey Turner, they move Justin Turner, they have Gavin Lux, they rotate guys in and out. They go get a guy like Max Muncy that was undervalued, Chris Taylor undervalued. They just move pieces around because they can. What's what's the the common thread there is not only spending money, it's spending prospects to acquire players and then also having those prospects like a Gavin Lux that they believe in to come up and fill those voids. The Mets aren't there yet. So what they need to do, it sounds dumb, but they need to throw money at the problem. It's not to say that if they had, let's say Cohen surprises us to the even me saying he's going to spend $400 million on payroll this year. It'd be the biggest payroll anybody's ever seen. He doesn't have to do it in perpetuity. He just needs to do it over the next few years to stem the tide if the Mets don't want to trade some of these young prospects. So, you know, the Mets are sort of in between a rock and a hard place. I think Cohen inherited something that needed to be fixed, but also, and look, I say this as a Jets fan too, we're, we're a starved fan base because we've only ever seen boom and bust. So mm-hmm. he doesn't want to come in and do the same thing. He doesn't want to come in and, you know, will pawn this up. So he has to build methodically, but he also realizes, hey, you know, they haven't won a World Series since 86. We'd like to try to change that to really build up some goodwill between the organization and the fan base. So the best way to do that is to hoard these prospects and to spend money. So, you know, it's I think all of that needs to be factored in when you look at the scope of the Mets offseason. And I also think that it is a little bit unfortunate because if the Mets had a couple of more guys under contract, even up till next year, they wouldn't have to be in this spot this year. It is yeah. really, really, really tough. And I, I don't envy Billy Epler or anybody else in scouting. I don't even envy Steve Cohen that he's looking at this and going like, I might have to spend an absurd amount of my money this year just to put a team on the field that was as good as the team last year that didn't win at all. So 
you know, I do acknowledge that they're in a weird spot. I just think that some Met fans are a little too down on it because, look, Steve Cohen said three to five years for a World Series. No one else said that. And I think when you, you can't guarantee a World Series, but what you can do is you can put yourself in the best position over the course of a season to make the playoffs and compete for a World Series. And if he doesn't spend enough money to do that, that's going to be the talking point. It's going to be like, hey, Steve, what happened to this thing you said three years ago? So I, and he knows that he's not dumb and he doesn't want to be compared to the Wolpons. He had to deal with the Wolpons as a minority owner and somebody who bought the team from them. So that's why I think ultimately you will see some money spent, but I mean, I'm with you. I, my number has been 350. I think they have to get a little creative. I would expect one trade of significance, what I would call it. And, and we'll see where we go. Well, I like that you brought up that word undervalued talent and bringing them in. That's something that the Wilpons failed at miserably for the longest amount of time. But this is something that could change, especially under Billy Epler. My biggest thing with Epler, and it's not even getting big free agents like a DeGrom or bringing back Nimmo or, you know, going after Verlander. That's easy because that's something that uh, Steve Cohen can take care of with his money. But Billy Epler's true test is how is he going to put the puzzle pieces together with this bullpen? How is he going to bring in like undervalued players for the bench? How is he going to bring that together? Because that's that's where the Mets struggled last season offensively, right? Getting that production from the bench. They didn't get that. You know, Tomas Nito was one of their better players, but even that's not saying much. Uh, Luis Guillorme mm -hmm. was hurt some of the time. Darren Ruff was uh, albatross the whole entire time. And and we did get good production from um, Daniel Vogel back. But to me, he doesn't really fit what... Uh, Buck Showalter wants in this team, which is versatility. He's basically just a bat off the bench. That's, you know, you're really taking, you know, people away from, you know, playing all these positions when you have, you know, Daniel Vogelbeck, who's only going to come in against righties and, and won't play a position. You're really putting yourself in a, in a bad spot, and that's how they struggled against the Padres. You know, you have... Daniel Vogelback, who can only DH, and then you have Terrence Gore, who's only coming in to run, and that's two people on the bench only being able to do a certain amount of things. They need more production from their bench and, you know, obviously their bullpen, which which was was a whole lot better than it was in two, uh, 2021, but, you know, they're going to need to put this thing together, and that's going to be the true test to me for Billy Epler. I don't disagree with that. Um, and that's why I said I don't envy the position that he's in right now. Um, yeah, their bench was pretty much abysmal. I do like Vogelback. I also thought Vogelback, um, despite everything you're saying, because I agree with you, um, he's the least versatile player on the team um, and doesn't really give you a lot of value in the sense that you can't, you have to mix and match because he can't play a position and he can't hit lefties pretty much at all. Um, but I did think it was a no-brainer to bring him back because the option was so small. Mm -hmm. $1.5 million in terms of baseball money is nothing. And so to me, just with all of the other question marks, with all of the other holes to fill, guys to maybe bring back, at least you say, you know what, we can just take this option <laughs> and we can just move forward knowing that we have, you know, at worst, a left-handed bat off the bench um, and maybe, you know, he's a left-handed part of a platoon at DH again. I would look to get better there. My plan would be to acquire somebody um, of significance. Uh, I've kind of said, look, I don't know if it's going to be Aaron Judge. For me, it would be Aaron Judge. If I were running the team, if I were Steve Cohen, I'd give him all the money he wants. Um, but that's just me. Uh, but even if it was a guy like Correa, you could put Correa at third base all of a sudden now. 
You have, you know, Escobar who can play second. He can play third. Um, he can probably fill in it short in an absolute pinch, but he becomes your quote unquote regular DH um, where you can then slot some guys in. You know, you can give Lindor a rest a half day off and have him DH and Correa can play short. You can do some things creatively where, um, you know, Alonzo is DHing here. So there's like a regular DH, but not exactly regular. And of course, with Escobar being a switch you have that benefit of you could say, you know what, look, we're going to give X player rest and it doesn't matter based on the matchups because, you know, Escobar's a switch hitter. Um, that's something that I would do. I would look to get better at that position. And also, look, we saw, despite how great Alonzo and Lindor were, I think we saw some warts because they played so much and they yep. kind of needed to play so much because they were the best offensive players on the team over the course of 162. And I think some of that can be alleviated by one, building up the bench so that you have a representative player, you know, I don't know, once once a week or, you know, two times in 18 days that can slot in and play either of those positions where you're not banking on those guys to be out there, or you give them those half day off where, you know, again, you're not losing massive production. I love Luis Guillorme, but, you know, you can't really afford to sit Lindor completely, not have him DH and play Guillorme at shortstop if you know, the offense is going to look the way it did this year. Because as it was, Alonzo was a man out on an island. They didn't have enough power throughout. And, you know, you really can't sit any of these guys and put a guy out there who's so much of a lesser offensive player, despite the fact that Luis Giorme has a nice little offensive game. He does some things great, but he's not Francisco Lindor. And it's the same thing with anybody they tried to have play first base. Darren Ruff was a disaster. Dom Smith hasn't hit a home run since I was 11 years old. J.D. <laughs> Davis just goes without saying all the things J.D. Davis. So, like, they really had no other option. Yeah, they put James McCann there every once in a while. James McCann hit 175 for a bulk of the season. So, you know, they have no choices. And I think that's where they really need to, you know, sort of get creative and, and bolster this lineup a bit. And that's, um, I, I don't want to drone on and on, but that's been my talking point for not jumping and bringing back Brandon Nimmo. It's not that I don't like Brandon Nimmo. I like him a lot, but I think the Mets can get better in a different way if they spend that money somewhere else. So for you with Brandon Nimmo, it's more the money and the years that bothers you with the contract of bringing him back? you rather spend that elsewhere? It is. You know, look, I think Brandon Nimmo, like Brandon's probably going to get six to seven years, 20 to $25 million, right? That's what everybody seems to think. Yeah. Um, and I think Brandon Nimmo deserves that. I think Brandon Nimmo has proven to be a guy who can really play center field. Um, he obviously is an on-base machine. He's got gap-to-gap powers, probably going to hit you 12 home runs, maybe 15 or 18 on a really good year. Um, but I look at Brandon Nimmo as a guy who's almost 30, has almost has only played 150 plus games once in his career, which was last year. Um, and to me, I'm not sure if the Mets can invest that kind of money in that kind of player in this kind of offseason where they have so many other holes to fill. I think it would be great to bring back Brandon, but I also think the Mets need a 
ideally a right-handed hitter. I think the Mets need somebody with more pop. I also, look, for everything Brandon Nimmo does great, I think that there are other people who, at least in the short term, are under contract that can do that job. So if you tell me Brandon Nimmo has to lead off, I counter that by saying, well, I think Starling Marte can lead off. I also think Jeff McNeil can lead off. Yeah. I think in the right matchup, I think Mark Canna can hit lead off. Um, and then when you go to playing center field, well, I think that Starling Marte can play center field still. I think that Mark Canna can play center field. Now, neither one of them are going to be as good as Nimmo was last year. But again, and I don't necessarily want to weaken the defense, but I think because they have so much they have to spend on, they need to be careful about how they do it. And that's why I've long said there is no free agent that fits a team better than Aaron Judge fits the Mets because he automatically becomes your center fielder. He plays a great center field. And instead of getting what Nimmo gives you in terms of on-base percentage and speed, you're now getting a guy who can hit third in the lineup, offer protection for Lindor and Pete, and you have another right-handed hitting power threat. To me, that would be the ultimate, like, wow, this would be incredible. You don't have to start square peg round holing with Trey Turner and Correa and where do you play these guys? Do you have to pay them like shortstop, but they don't play shortstop and stuff like that. So to me, that would be the the ultimate way that I would go. But I, you know, it seems like they're not going to invest what it's going to take. It's probably going to be another $40 million a year contract. And so to that point, you know, I I, I get it. But um, that's, for me, it's it, with Nimmo, it's, it's the money and it's not that I don't think he deserves it. And it's also the fit. And it's not that he doesn't fit this team, but I just don't think he fits this team that really need to do some different things offensively. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I kind of know where your mindset is and where and who you want to bring in. But towards the end of the show, I want to get kind of your most realistic prediction on how this offseason goes. But we got to get into QBC. And, you know, the tagline yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tag is bringing sexy back. And that's because Bartolo Colon will be in the house on a panel that you're hosting. What did it even mm-hmm. feel like to get the call that said, hey, John, you're hosting this panel. And guess what? It's Bartolo Colon. Uh, you know, it was pretty awesome. Um, I was excited about all the guests. Um, so I kind of knew about the guests or the potential of the guests um, before it was 100% locked in. So that's Hojo, uh, Bartolo, and Ari Dickey. So I had heard a little bit that that's who they were looking at. And, you know, so automatically in my head, uh, I started to think like, okay, who who would I like to interview? And then I was like, I can't really narrow it down. I would love to interview all of them. So then uh, I I basically like, they kind of asked me who I wanted to interview. And I was like, oh, let me think. I was just trying to buy time. And then they, they reached back out to me and they were like, hey, we were thinking it'd be a great fit if you interviewed Bartolo. And I was like, oh, thank God, I don't have to decide. You guys have made the decision for me. Um, because I, I would love to uh, interview any of, of the three uh, former Mets. So, but Bartolo sticks out to me because of how, um, you know, he's he's become this cult figure in Mets yeah. lore, which is so strange in a way because Bartolo has had almost three different careers, right? Like some guys have these, these comeback years. Like we had Fernando Tatis who had that, you know, really great like flash in the pan, lightning in the bottle comeback year. Um, and then, you know, guys kind of fade away again. And usually as Mets fans, we don't get a lot of that. 
you know, we've brought guys in and they fail and then they go somewhere else and they're successful. You know, but Bartolo had this resurgence where, you know, he was one of the best pitchers in baseball. Then all of a sudden he comes back with the Yankees and the A's and the Mets bring him in and it seems like a good depth signing. But then he just continues to be good and he continues to um, do things on the field that kind of defy his age, defy his body type. And you can just watch him and just think like, wow, is there a guy that you can think of? And I, I'm not saying that other people don't, right? Even people on this current team, Brandon Nimmo, Lindor come to mind. But Ant, like, is there a person you can think of in, in recent memory, not only with the Mets, but in baseball, that has more fun on the field than Bartolo Colon? So, you know, he's just this this great, like, uh, personality, aside from all the great stuff he's done on the field. And then he had, you know, the moments of the home run and the behind-the-back flip to get the out at first base with Daniel Murphy and you know, all these like cool little moments. So, um, you know, I'm just excited to talk to him about, I think his overarching career. So much has been made about um, those little moments with the Mets, which I think are great. And obviously the most important stuff to us as Mets fans and the people who will be at the QBC. But to me, the trajectory of his career, I'm trying to find a top for him. And, you know, I can't really find one because like I said, he's almost had these, these three with Cleveland and then Montreal. And then he had this kind of upswing with the Yankees and the A's. And then he finished things out in a way with, with us that was just, I don't know. They're, they're like three acts to a very strange play. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. He was only here for three years. I pulled up the stats. Three years, he went 44 and I think 33 with a 3.90 ERA. I mean, we all thought he was just, like you said, a stopgap. Until the kids were ready, until DeGrom and Wheeler and Harvey, when they were ready, you know, it was going to be time to turn the page. But he became so much more, especially in their two-year playoff run. You mentioned the home run. He became such a fan favorite, and he's so beloved by the Mets fans. I even remember uh, going this year to Old Timers Day, and the ovation that he got, just as good as what Piazza would get and and and, and Pedro Martinez and, and some of the best Mets of all time. He, he's just that beloved, and I even remember the day that he left. Uh, I, I got my wisdom teeth pulled, and I found out that he signed with Atlanta. I was, like, heartbroken. And I didn't yeah. think I would ever feel that way about Bartolo Colon, but he was just such a good dude, such a good player. I think the biggest thing that he brought to this team is he ate innings. I mean, whether good or bad, he was out there throwing pitches, something that we just don't see anymore. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's funny because, again, talking about the the personality of, of Bartolo, he he was a guy who could be there to teach the younger guys, right? Like, he he had been there and done it all. Guy won a Cy Young. Um, you know, guy came up with an electric arm, throwing hard, throwing gas. And obviously when we had him, he wasn't the same pitcher. He was more crafty. And, you mm -hmm. know, nobody threw more fastballs than Bartolo Colon. But it was like he would cut this one. He would slice this one. He would two-seam that one. He would four-seam this one. He would throw this sinker and this version. Or he would hold back a little bit. Like, you know, he was so crafty. But, you know, there's stuff that guys like DeGrom and Harvey could learn from him and Wheeler – watching him because he had also been the top of the rotation, number one ace guy, throwing 95, 97, coming out there firing bullets. He had all of that experience. But I think from a fan's perspective, um, and this is not to make everything about, uh, you know, body type and stuff like that, but I do think sometimes it matters because you see it a little bit with Daniel Vogelback too that we talked about before. You know, these dudes who are, 
like when we're talking about major league baseball players, they are the top 1% of baseball players in the world, right? And then you look at people like Mike Trout or Shohei Otani or, you know, whatever. They are the top 1% of the top 1% of baseball players in the world. The guys who get the $300 million contract, Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, Lindor. Um, but when you see some of these guys, like I've met Mike Trout. He's one of the nicest, most humblest people I've ever met. He's a very much East Coast, New Jersey guy. You know, you wouldn't think that he's worth all the money he's worth and that he's been the best player in baseball for a decade. He doesn't carry himself with any arrogance or disdain. He'll talk to anybody. He's he's very friendly. But he's also built like a Greek statue, right? Like he <laughs> yeah. looks like the most impressive athlete you've ever seen. You know, he could be a football player with that build. He could do a lot of different things with the build that he has, but he plays baseball. And I think when you look at guys like Bartolo, you look at guys like Daniel Vogelback from a fan's perspective, you just go like, man, one, it's relatable. Like it's relatable to average folks who are just fans. And the other thing is it becomes this very impressive story mm -hmm. where you're like, wait, Bartolo is 41 years old pitching in the major leagues and he's not Tom Brady, right? Like Tom Brady doesn't eat anything but like, you know, an ounce of white rice four times a week. And so he has to be, you know, completely built the way that he is to, you know, be able to endure what he's going through at 45 years old. And you're like, look at Bartolo Colon, man. Look at what this guy's doing. So I think part of it is that I don't want to make the whole narrative about like, oh, he's this husky, jolly guy. Like, it's not that. But I do think that that factors into it because you're just watching a guy who is just a, he's a elite athlete in a regular person's body that people can easily connect to. Yeah, you're right. And um, I think too also, you know, for baseball players, it's a little different. I think being ripped and all that is is, is overrated. Uh, you know, you got Babe Ruth. He was a big guy. I mean, look at Keith Hernandez smoking mm -hmm. in the dugout. Like, I mean, the, the players. Even Cespedes. Cespedes yeah. would smoke. Yeah, I mean, the, you're not talking about ancient history. And I, th I just think that the baseball players, they want them to be these rip chiseled guys like in other sports, basketball, football. And, and I, I don't think that's necessarily needed in this sport. I, I think it's all, you know, more stamina, more cardio. Uh, look at Daryl Strawberry. Uh, obviously, he was a strong guy. But mm -hmm. when he first came up, he was this, you know, toothpick. He was a thin guy and he was just hitting home runs like nothing. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, like, I don't um, I don't take away from the fact that um, you don't need to because I agree with you. You don't need to be this like unbelievably ripped, like great physique person to play baseball. I think that's evident throughout time and you've mentioned a few people um but i do think there's just something to be said because in all the other sports like if you're a fan of multiple sports which i think it's fair to say most people are right you like at least two sports that you're like oh i'm really invested in these you're just constant especially in today's day and age here in you know in the 2020s like you're you're just shown people all the time that are like this is what this guy does for his training program. Like, I think it's the social media age. I think it's the, the the time that we live in. It's just like, you're bombarded with like, look at LeBron James. LeBron James could play tight end. And then all of a sudden you look at a guy like Carmelo Anthony and you're like, I mean, Carmelo's, Carmelo was great in his prime. He didn't look like LeBron. He wasn't ripped to shreds. You know, you look at a guy like Kevin Durant and like, obviously Kevin Durant's in good shape, but you want to talk about a guy like, I think his legs might be thinner than mine. <laughs> so you look at some of these guys um, and it's nice to see that other, that other side but with a guy like Kevin Durant it's also like it's clear that he's an elite athlete because he has unbelievable physical gifts because he's taller than
than you know 90% of the population or, or whatever. So I think when you look at guys who play baseball, it's just always easy. I know a lot of, you know, New Yorkers and baseball fans in general don't like this next person I'm going to mention, but like, you know, Jose Altuve is a cool story because he's Jose Altuve. Like, you know, he's like 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five, whatever he is, 5'6", I don't know. But like, that's, that's how tall I am. I'm 5'6". You know, Dustin Pedroia, like you look at these guys and you're like, I think I could play in the bigs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, you can do it where you can, I don't know. I think it's just a, a different kind of inspiring story with these guys. And um, the fact that Bartolo was able to remake himself and remake his career again, I, I think two separate times off of his unbelievable early success uh, is another thing that's just inspiring. I think that would be the case regardless of what he looked like. You know, I think if he was, um, you know, this unbelievable, like, great shape guy and that was the stuff he preached, a la Tom Brady, I think people would still be like, listen, man, it's still pretty incredible. You know, everybody loved Jamie Moyer pitching, you know, into his late 40s. Yeah. Um, was not the same kind of guy. Um, but like I said, I think Bartolo kind of, he did it two separate times. Came back as a reliever, then with the people were like, oh, yeah, he'd be a good depth piece. Oh, no, he's going to Oakland and he's starting again. What? What do you mean he's starting again? He's 38. He hasn't started a game in five years. They're like, ah, it'll be fine. And then it was. And then it was like, oh, the Mets signed him. And I remember when the Mets signed him, I was excited about it, but there was a little part of me that was like, man, Oakland usually gets this stuff right. And he was relatively cheap. He's the kind of guy that they might look to keep. Why aren't they keeping him? Uh-oh, you know, this seems like a bad Mets move written all over it pre-Cohen, you know, with the Wolpons. And uh, all of a sudden it wasn't. Like the guy just, he was out there, like you said, pretty much every game and he took his lumps. You know, he had those great games where he would go eight innings and give up one run or no runs. And then he had games where, you know, he would give up five runs, but he would still go six or seven and, and that really helped out this team because it let us not kill our bullpen every day. yeah it was definitely a great deal that really worked out for the Mets and it's a great deal that you get to you know interview him and talk with him on this panel it starts at 4 p.m on Saturday at the QBC you also mentioned R.A. Dickey will be there he's going to be doing a panel at 12 with Roger Clark and then there's also uh Hojo Howard Johnson he'll be doing a panel at 2 p.m with uh Lori Rubinson a lot a lot of great stuff going on here. You got the State of the Mets with uh, a to say uh, guest, Mark Healy. He's going to be doing that. You got Gil Hodges Award presented by uh, presented to Jay Horowitz, SNY's The Mets Pod. Uh, you also got uh, the New York Post Amazing But True podcast. Uh, and then Mets Hot Stove. They're going to do with uh, Sal Akata, John Harper, and Gary Apple. Which one of these uh, other panels are you looking forward to the most oh man that's tough because there's so much good stuff but um probably for me it's got to be um the the re dickey panel he's just another guy that i find so interesting as a, as a character study outside of baseball similar to bartolo um and you know i also i i love um i love roger clark i love his 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 work i think he's um he's uh, been on my show uh till Mets do his part he's you know great on new york one he's a funny guy uh but like he's one of those people who takes the job seriously, but not so seriously that it's, yeah. it, it's uptight. You know, if you ever watch him on the news or, um, you know, when he was a guest on our show or at the QBC last year, like, you know, he, he likes to have fun and you can tell he's having fun doing it along the way. And also he's a great sports fan. You know, he's a great Mets fan. He's a great Jets fan. Um, so I'm looking forward to that because I think 
I think Roger will be able to get some good stuff out of Ari. Um, you know, I, I think Ari is a guy who I, I've never met him, so I, I don't mean to speak. Um, no, you know, he he's had an interesting knowing, story. But, he's had an interesting story and interesting life. Exactly, and I think that sometimes he seems like a guy from his tenure with the Mets that also at times doesn't take himself too seriously. But I also think that like. R.A., which is fine, that R.A. has, a, I think, a message. I think R.A. always had interest beyond baseball, and I think a lot of it is because, look, before he reinvented himself as a knuckleballer, R.A. thought that his career was going to be over, you know, before it ever even started. So I think when you when you look at, you know, I, I think he, he has this, um, he's an insightful guy, he's an in-depth guy, and so I think Roger will be able to get some good stuff out of him, but then I, I think he'll also, you know, in, in the course of the panel, I think he'll be able to get some stuff out of him that's, uh, you know, the lighter side of R.A. Dickey, because yeah. I think R.A. kind of has both of those uh, personalities. And if you go back and you look at some of the best pitching seasons by, by starters on the Mets, R.A. Dickey may have top 10, maybe ranging around top five, because, I mean, obviously, Seaver has a whole bunch. And then you go with Doc uh, and, and DeGrom. But R.A. Dickey, that season he won the Cy Young, that's one of the best pitching seasons I've ever seen. I was glued every day to, or every time he came out, to, to pitch a game. It was that good. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're 100% right. I mean, it was appointment television. And for somebody who, um, you know, I've only lived through the the DeGrom and, and R.A. Dickey, you know, I was I was really young for Doc, and obviously I'm not old enough to see uh, Seaver at all. But I think you're probably right. Um, if, if we had all the great Mets pitching seasons lined up, R.A. Dickey probably get pushed out of the top five just because of the otherworldly greatness of, you know, the two Cy Young years from DeGrom. Uh, Seaver's probably got two, three years, maybe more, you know, you want to start nitpicking on some of the Seaver years so that he's not one through four on your list. <laughs> yeah. And obviously there's the Doc year in 85. And um, so, you know, just because of the greatness, he probably gets pushed just outside of the top five. But without looking at any of the numbers, I think just on paper, you can make an argument that he would be in that top five for that one season. So, um, you know, he's definitely top 10. Um, and, you know, you probably want to say he's maybe six, seven or eight, you know, which which is great when you look at what he was able to accomplish. And he was, I mean, man, at times he was unhittable mm -hmm. that year. It was maybe the most impressive thing I've ever seen. And, Didn't he have back-to-back you know, one-hitters? He did have back-to-back one-hitters. And, you know, doing it with a knuckleball that you can change speeds off of, like, what, like, again, similar to what I was saying about Bartolo, like, what, like, how, how like you utter the phrase out loud, like, changing speeds on a knuckleball. And you're like, how does someone even do that? Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, and I always used to love them do slow motion on, on his pitches. I think they even came out with a documentary on him. I think he was even on David Letterman. Like, that's how big Ari Dickey was that year. And it was so great to see that turnaround from when we got him. He was just supposed to be a depth signing, and he just came out of nowhere. He had a pretty decent year. Then he had, mm -hmm. you know, a good one, and then he had that great one before they traded him. And, and that kind of... He really changed the course of the organization through that trade as well because it helped send them to the World Series in 2015 with, you know, Travis Darno having a really good season, Noah Syndergaard being called up. He is a part of, you know, the fabric of that 2010 to 2020 decade. Yeah. 
Yeah, in, in so many ways, you can't write the story of, of those Mets without Ari Dickey. And it's not just because of his personal accomplishments on the field for us, but yeah, what he brought back in a trade. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a weird bittersweet moment because I think, I don't know if you felt this way when it happened. Um, I wanted to celebrate Ari Dickey. I wanted to keep Ari yeah. Dickey because, you know, after that 2012 season, like he was the only thing to watch in 2012, right? Like, and um, it kind of felt like, oh man, like how could we let this guy go? But deep down, I knew it was the better move. Deep down, I knew we weren't going to be all that competitive the following year. And we kind of needed to cash out on him because there was no guarantee he was going to be that good the following year. Whereas, you know, you're sitting on a Cy Young winner and you know that you can trade him when his value is the highest. So, you know, it was a little bittersweet, but I did get it. And look, it wound up paying off. And I know people feel certain ways now about Syndergaard and, and Darno for, for different reasons, uh, you know, for each other, for each one of those guys. Um, but that was a trade you make a hundred times. Oh, yeah. 100. Yeah, it's 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 you, we can't be revisionists and look back on, on certain things and be just because this guy left or this guy didn't play well and now he's playing well on a other team we just that's just setting yourself up for just more pain more anguish uh but you know R.A. Dickey man uh, what a story that is he'll be on at 12 p.m with Roger Clark and I've had interactions with Roger Clark on Twitter I gotta get him on the show at some point uh looking at the rest of this doors open 12 uh at 10 30 a.m QBC goes off air 6 p.m you need to buy admission ticket packages to enter QBC uh and they can you know the admission in an autograph for one of the players and you can purchase that separately queensbaseballconvention.com hey met fans anthony rivera of the subway to shape podcast just cutting in wanting to end this episode right here me and john had such a great conversation went over an hour long and i decided why not cut this into two parts so we're gonna have two parts i wanted to make sure that the QBC got the proper due since it's happening this weekend. So we're going to cut the interview right here. We're going to come back on Monday with the second half of the podcast. It will be episode 91 coming back. And me and John talk about Eric Chavez becoming the bench coach and what that means for the Mets moving forward and what it means for the managerial position moving forward as well. And we're going to get into that. We're also getting into predictions. What John thinks is going to be the most logical moves that are going to happen and how this offseason will finally play out for the New York Mets. But that's going to happen on Monday. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So we're going to cut this part of the episode right here. The episode went so long that I said, you know what? I'm going to give you guys two episodes. We're going to drop this one. And then on Monday, we will drop the next episode, part two of my conversation with John Sapinero, podcast co-host of Till Mets Do Us Part. And we will get to that on Monday. But we're going to wrap it up right here. You can follow Subway to Shea on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Subway to Shea. Listen to the show on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts. Turn on your notifications to never miss an episode of Subway to Shea. 
If you're a new listener to this podcast, welcome. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you consider subscribing on any of the platforms I just mentioned. Also, make sure to share it with your fellow Met fans. Let them know this is the podcast they should be listening to if they are a New York Mets fan. If you've been a supporter this whole time, I can't thank you enough, and this show wouldn't be where it is without you. And because of you, Subway to Shays Global, this podcast is not only played in the United States, but also reaches across the globe. Globe. So no matter where you listen, please take a few minutes to write me a review and let me know what you think of the show, what you like, what you don't like. You can do that on Apple Podcasts and Spotify by giving me one to five stars. Hopefully you're giving me five stars. And on Apple Podcasts, you can even leave comments in the review section that will help me know what needs to be done to make this show even better. Don't forget to follow my work for Rising Apple. Rising Apple is a New York Mets site on the fan sided network, and you can read my articles along with a lot of other great writers on that website by going to risingapple.com or checking out the links in the description of this week's podcast episode. Make sure to follow Rising Apple on Twitter at Rising Apple Blog and the Fan Sided Network at Fan Sided. Thank you everyone for tuning in. I appreciate you so much. And that will do it for this week's podcast episode. Don't forget, listen, subscribe, share, and review. For Anthony Rivera, you've been listening to Subway to Shea. And always remember, let's go Mets. Mets.